Amen. Well, over the next little while, we are going to be journeying through the book of Colossians. And if there was a word that encapsulated the book of Colossians, if there was a headline word, if you like, I think it would be supreme, hence the graphic. Colossians is a book of four chapters. It's quite short. Uh, In the New Testament, it's one of the letters that Paul wrote to this church in Colossae, hence Colossians. And Colossians really, if there was a word, it would be summed up as supreme because it's there to show how Jesus is supreme over everything. That he's not just like a good guy alongside a load of other good guys. He's not like one option alongside a load of equally good options. Jesus is supreme. He has the supremacy over the world, over the church, over individual lives. Colossians is there to say Jesus is unique. He's unlike any other. He is God in a body on earth who left his spirit to be amongst us even here and now. The invitation through reading Colossians, as we're going to do over the next little while, is to turn away from anything else that isn't Jesus, to dethrone that, if you like, and to enthrone Jesus as supreme Lord over all. And as we do that, I believe that we will receive the joy and the peace that comes from living with him as Lord. Given that we're going to be talking about it for the next few weeks, some context about the book of Colossians, which will be helpful in putting it in its right context. Colossae is a town in what's now Turkey. Uh, It's about 100 miles from Ephesus, which also gets this letter written to it in the New Testament. And it's a letter written by a guy called Paul who wrote loads of the New Testament. The interesting thing with Colossians is that this isn't a church that Paul ever physically went to. This isn't one of those churches that he started or he was around as it started. This is one of those churches that started as people in other places got wind of good the good news about Jesus, worked out what it was to follow him, and then as they travelled back home or as they moved to a new city, they started the church. Colossians is this really interesting book because it's Paul's letter to a people that he's not actually met yet, and I don't think he goes on to meet because of what happens in his life, as we'll cover in a moment. Isn't it exciting to think that the gospel doesn't spread just through superstars like Paul? It has to be him going there to see anything good happen. Paul does his bit, but then other people do their bit. And if other people didn't do their bit, we wouldn't have a church in Colossae. We wouldn't have a letter written to them. Two people called Epaphras and another called Philemon are thought to be from Colossae. And they were uh, involved in the starting of this church. And it's because they played their part that we have this letter to read. As I said, Paul writes this letter not from a great position, if I'm honest. He writes it from prison. Because of what Paul was doing in preaching about Jesus, in saying that Jesus was the way to be reconciled to God the Father, he was put under house arrest. He was imprisoned for about two years. But during those two years, he didn't just wallow, he didn't lick his wounds, he didn't think, oh, woe is me, and what can I do apart from just wish to get out? He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write letters to people who are following Jesus. I'm going to try and encourage them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to do what I can, even from the confines of prison, in order that they might flourish. He hadn't been there, but as we'll see in the passage we'll read in a moment, he was praying for them all the time, praying that they might be built up to follow Jesus even more fully. What we believe happened before the book of Colossians was written is that the church started and it was going okay. 
But then some bad teaching kind of got in, some distorted ideas about who Jesus was and what it was to follow him. And that had meant that the Colossian church started to kind of veer off track, if you like. We all know that feeling, don't we? If you were to take your hands off the steering wheel when you're driving, even if everything's at 12 o'clock, you'd start to veer right or left because it's not completely aligned. It's a little bit like that here. The people set off on the right course, but then some dodgy teaching, some unhelpful ideas came into their mix, if you like. And then they started to believe things that weren't quite true. Paul's aim is to say, here is the truth. Here's what you need to believe. Here's what you need to know in order to live life fully for Jesus. And one strand of the issue that was at play with the Colossians, if you like, one of these veering off courses was this thing that you could, in very fancy terms, call syncretism. Now, syncretism is the idea that you can have one thing and add something else to it and it all be okay. In modern language, syncretism would be something like, I want a bit of Jesus but I also want a bit of Buddhism. I want a bit of Jesus, but I also want to provide everything for myself, just in case Jesus doesn't supply everything that I actually need. I want a bit of Jesus, but not so much that it makes me uncomfortable, requires too much from me, or cuts down the freedom that I want to really be Lord over my own life. Colossians shows us that you can't really do that with Jesus. You can't have a bit of Jesus and a bit of something else. Because that's to say that those two things are on a par. They're on a level. They deserve to be thought about in the same breath. If Jesus really is supreme, he has to go above everything else. You can't have Jesus plus anything and expect to live life in all its fullness. All the way through this letter, in response to this syncretism, this blending, this adding together of things that cannot be added together, Paul teaches Jesus is the one and the only who has that place. This teaching or that teaching may have come in, but it's wrong. Put it to one side. Enthrone Jesus again as supreme Lord over everything. And your life will benefit as a result. If you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then the one message that I would want you to go home with is that Jesus is the answer. The answer to your longing, the answer to your deepest desires, the answer to that thing that keeps you up at night that you've never admitted to anything else, the hollowness that maybe you sometimes feel. Jesus is the answer to the way that your life can be the best that it possibly can be, that it can go on forever and ever. Every other answer that people might give, my career, my spouse, earning enough to just have a nice holiday every year, using substances to to blur things out. Every other answer will let you down. Every other answer will supply something for a time, but it won't supply everything for your whole life. Jesus is the answer to your longings, your desires, to your deepest questions. And if you do follow Jesus here today, the one thing I would want to say to you is to ask you the question, if Jesus is the answer... Is he your only answer? Because what was going on with Colossians is they were saying, yeah, of course, Jesus is great, but I'm also going to answer with this and this and this. I want a bit of Jesus, but a bit of that and a bit of that, just in case. I'll hedge my bets. And to be a Christian to me is to say Jesus is the one and the only. He's the only one that deserves the place of lordship over my life, the supreme authority, the highest of all. Is Jesus your only answer? 
And if not, what do you want to do about it? When I was growing up uh, as a Christian, we used to go away to a Christian festival once a year around Easter time normally. And it was at one of those holiday camps. I don't know if you've ever been to them in the UK. It's sort of chalets and a big top and a fun fair and a swimming pool and all that stuff kind of ready-made on the site. And we went pretty regularly. And one year, all the people that went in our group decided we're going to agree a time where we're all free and then we're going to go to the go-karts and we're going to see who's best on the go-karts, right? So everyone involved in this one race of the go-karts was part of our group. So we agreed a time, we went down, we got in the queue, we paid for the ticket and we got into our go-karts. We're lined up and we're ready to go. There's lots of uh, trying to be the best. There's lots of people trying to show that they're going to be the best driver, lots of banter and all that stuff. And then the race starts, the lights turn green. And everyone else flies out of the traps. And I crawl out of the traps. Something was going wrong with my car, so I thought. Everyone else is flying around, turning the corners and overtaking each other, bashing each other along the way to try and be the first in this race. And I'm crawling along at a really slow pace. Now I thought, okay, something must be wrong with my car, right? Something, the motor's not firing, I don't know, I've not started it properly. I don't know, something's wrong. And obviously the people who ran the go-karts also thought something must be wrong because why is everyone else going twice as fast as this guy who's just crawling around on his own? So they sent someone over, we pulled into a lay-by and he said, okay, what's going on? Had a look at the car. We said, everything looks like it's fine. And he said, just show me how you were driving it. And I was like, okay, here's what it's doing. He's like, oh, you've got one foot on the accelerator and you've got your other foot on the brake. <laughs> So everyone else is all on the accelerator, flying around the course. I'm there with my foot on both pedals, being about 13, I hadn't yet driven in my defense. And of course, that means I'm going at half pace. Everyone else is flying around the track, having a great time, and I'm just crawling along. I probably could have run faster, to be honest. Syncretism is a little bit like that. It's having one foot on the accelerator. I'm going for life with Jesus. But it's having another foot on the pedal of something else. And what, it ha what happens when you try and add something to Jesus is it doesn't boost you, it holds you back. It doesn't see you go further, it sees you go slower. Jesus is enough on his own. He needs nothing adding to him. And in fact, anything that you do try and add will only lead to your ruin. Anything else that you put on a level with Jesus, it won't be trustworthy or secure. It won't see you through this life. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything else is a lie. It's a half-truth, and it won't lead you to the fullness of life that he has for you. Of course, Jesus brings good things into our life. Peace and joy he brings Christian community, like we've already heard in our baptism. But we're not putting those things on a level with Jesus. They're just kind of things that come as we make him Lord. They're bonuses along the way. They're gifts that he gives to us. We're not saying that that is now God. We're just saying that's one of the benefits. That's thrown in for free, if you like. Maybe it's truer to say Jesus and everything he brings, plus nothing, equals everything. And my prayer for you as we consider this book, as we read through it and preach it on Sundays, is that you might get to the end of it and say truly that Jesus is supreme over the world, over the church, but maybe more importantly over your life. Jesus is the one, the only. Jesus plus nothing. And if there's anything in the way at the moment, if there is something that's been added, 
that through the weeks that we consider this, your faith would grow to such a point where you can put all your eggs in Jesus' basket and not hedge them with anything else. I pray that you're going to see that Jesus is the answer, the only answer, the best answer to your deepest longings, your biggest questions, your ultimate needs. So, with a long setup having been done, let's read the first portion of Colossians from Colossians 1, verses 1 to 14. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn there or follow along as I read it now. Colossians 1, 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learnt it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you, and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul begins this letter by reminding the people that he's praying for them. And he's praying for two main things. The first thing he's praying for is knowledge. He says, I pray that you know God. I pray that you know God's will, that you know what it is to be filled with the Spirit, to have all wisdom and understanding. If he had one prayer for them, it's that they would know what God wants for them to do, that they grow in godly wisdom, but that they grow in an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit so that they could hear his voice and live differently as a result. If I'm honest, obviously drawing from scripture, my prayer for you often is pretty much the same. I pray that you might grow in wisdom, that your character might become more and more godly, that you might become more Christ-like, but also that you would have understanding, that the Holy Spirit would speak direct to you to lead you to what he's got for you. There's so many things in scripture that are important to apply, principles of how we might go about living. But there are also things that aren't covered there that are still really important. For instance, the Bible might tell you how to work with integrity and conscientiousness, to treat people fairly, to give generously of what you receive. The Bible might tell you how to work, but it doesn't tell you where to work. 
It doesn't say be an engineer or an accountant or a bus driver. That's to be worked out in your relationship with the Holy Spirit. The voice of the Spirit is able to lead you to all understanding without deviating a word from what's in Scripture because the two will always be consistent. Paul prays that they would know what God's will for them is and I pray that you would know what God's will for you is because when you're in the sweet spot of doing what God has for you, that is life and life in all fullness. When Colossians and the Bible in general, to be honest, talks about knowing, I think it's important to understand a bit about what's going on in the context there. In the times of the Bible, to know something was to believe it in your head, but also to work it out with your life. There was no concept of knowing something that you didn't do. Now we might say, well, I know that the healthy thing for me to do is to eat five portions of fruit and veg a day, but then not do it. The Colossians, the time, Paul would say, well, that's not really knowing it. If you know it, you do it. If you don't know it, you don't do it. There's no sense in which we know something without it working itself out in our actions. So Paul isn't saying, I pray that you know God's will to just sit there and know it, to be able to write it on a whiteboard or on the top of a to-do list, but never actually get round to it. Paul's saying, I pray that you know it so that you can live it. There was a guy called Charles Blondin who in 1859 walked over Niagara Falls on a tightrope. 160 foot drop, quarter of a mile between one safe point and another on a tightrope. And Charles Blondin was obviously great at this and he did it many, many times. He started to do it whilst carrying stuff. He did it with a wheelbarrow. He did it whilst cooking an omelette, apparently. Just to show that he was able to do it and the crowd, as you would expect, flocked to see what was going on. And there was a point after he went, ac- went across with a wheelbarrow, where he went across with the wheelbarrow, but he put a bag in it, heavy weight, and said, I can do it even with this. And he walked across, and the crowd went wild. Isn't this guy amazing? No one can do this. And then he said to the crowd, do you believe that I could go across this tightrope over Niagara Falls with a person in the wheelbarrow? And the crowd went, yes, of course you could. We've just seen you do all those other things. And then he said, so who's going to get in? And the crowd went completely quiet. Everyone thought it was possible. Everyone believed it until they were asked to do something off the back of it. Faith in Jesus is a little bit like that. Knowing Jesus is a little bit like that. It's no use just to know that Jesus offers hope, but then to live a life that's full of despair. It's no use just to live a life that knows that Jesus can do the impossible, but not to believe that he could do your impossible. One of the reasons that we spend time waiting for the presence of the Holy Spirit every time we gather is because that takes what we've heard in our heads and allows it to drop and be applied in our hearts. There's no use knowing that God is good if it doesn't work itself out in your actions, if you don't live differently as a result. It's said, eventually, that one person did volunteer to Charles Blondin. One little girl raised her hand and said, I'll go across. And it turned out that it was his daughter who got into the wheelbarrow and across they went, not harmed at all. She knew that her dad was good. She knew that he could do it. And she was willing to say, I know it, so I'll do it. 
And she experienced the joy of knowing her dad in that way. I think what God is saying to some of us today is, get in. Let me show you. Don't just believe it in your head. Let it work out in your life. So that's knowledge. The first thing that Paul prays for much more quickly. Let's think about the second thing, freedom. This passage continues and it says that God the Father has qualified the church at Colossae to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. On our own, we have no right to share in anything of God's. On our own, we don't get written into his will. We don't get to share in his inheritance. On our own, we're not part of the kingdom of light because our actions and our thoughts are often more about the kingdom of darkness, aren't they? If we're going to be really honest. But the good news that Paul says to this church is that you're not on your own. In Christ, you have been qualified. In Christ, you have been forgiven. In Christ, you have been given a share in the inheritance of God, the glory of heaven, and all that he has to offer. In Christ, they are part of the kingdom of light. And they have, verse 13, been rescued from the dominion of darkness, the rule of the enemy. Jesus' desire for you today is to know the freedom that comes from knowing Jesus is supreme. To be freed from anything that would hold you back. To be able to live your whole life for him. And the good news is that we're not on our own. That Jesus' offer to us today is to come alongside us. To receive the faith that we put in him and to cleanse us from the inside out. To break the addictions, the habits the things that hold us back from truly following him, to do away with the Jesus plus whatever it is in your life so that it's just Jesus and we know everything in all its fullness. He says, come and be connected to me again. Come live life in me again and all of this will be thrown in as a benefit. Once that happens, Jesus says, you are qualified in me to receive a portion of the inheritance. There's a little bit of heaven and all of God's glory with your name on it. If only you'll put your faith in him and receive it forever. To end, I want to tell you the story of going once to Rome to lead a trip of um, Christian people who were learning to be vicars. Uh, This is before I was training myself. We went to Rome to see some of the wonderful things that were there, to understand church history a little bit better. And we went to the place where they think Paul wrote these letters from, the place where Paul's prison was. We know that it was in Rome, and according to all the evidence we've got, they've placed it in a particular dungeon under a particular street in Rome, and you can go there as a tourist. So me and about 20 people who were there on this trip went to this place of Paul's captivity, the place where he was in house arrest, the place where all his freedom was taken away. The place from which he wrote letters like this. And as we went in, they'd kind of mimicked up a bit of a prison cell. They put some information on the wall and then there was a gate that you could walk through and then close it behind you as if to say, well, here's what Paul's life was like for two years. So as we were there, we thought, well, let's all go into that and let's close the gate behind us. Let's see what it would have felt like just to be there for a moment. And then someone said, well, let's say a prayer. You know, we're not, we're not going to be in this place very many time, more times in our life. Let's say a prayer. So there's 20 of us in this room, gate shut, 
Someone says a prayer, and the moment the first word was said, one of the group, spontaneously out of nowhere, started speaking in tongues for the first time. Tongues is this language that God gives through the Holy Spirit. It's not taught by humans, but it's a way that we can communicate with God on a, on a deep spiritual level. And instantly in that moment, in the place of captivity, of prison, a freedom having been curtailed, this amazing, joyful, free sound came out of her mouth. And I just thought, isn't that so like God? That Paul, writing from this prison, isn't writing, woe is me. He's writing, be free in Christ, because he knew he was free. They could have put as many chains on him as they wanted, but his life would still have been free. We went and experienced a bit of it and didn't experience captivity. We experienced the freedom that came as the Holy Spirit filled that person and it changed the atmosphere for us all. Paul's prayer for the Colossians was that they would know God fully, know God's will, and then that they would know his freedom. And I believe his prayer for us would be exactly the same. Jesus wants you to live in freedom. He is completely adequate. He's fully sufficient. He's entirely supreme to bring that freedom about. And it comes as we ask him to make it true in our lives. So in a moment of quiet now, shall we pray and ask him to do that in our midst, even here today?